Welcome to Sighs and Whispers, an interview podcast series about cultural history. I'm Laura McClass-Helms, a fashion and cultural historian. My guest this week is Pat Running Bear Evans, a legendary model from the early 1970s, whose shaved head, high cheekbones, and luminous brown skin made her a star. In addition to her fashion and beauty work, Pat appeared on three notorious, highly sexual album covers for the Ohio Players. You would likely recognize her from those covers, or maybe the iconic photos of her and Isaac Hayes that are often reprinted, or a black and white image of her profile that often turns up in articles about black beauty. Unlike her contemporaries, Pat completely left the fashion industry, resulting in her contributions rarely being discussed. I tracked her down in which she agreed to speak with me over the phone, slowly spooling out her story. I will let Pat speak for herself, but in this interview we cover everything from her Native American and Black heritage, her childhood in Harlem, her experience with modeling, the modeling agency she founded, her clothing designs, working with Isaac Hayes, her love affair with Leonard Nimoy, and much more. A religious experience led her to close her agency and move to the country in the early 1990s, focusing since then on her spiritual experience and on making traditional Native American clothes, moccasins, and objects. I spoke with Pat for several hours, the last hour and a half of which was devoted to her religious beliefs and spiritual awakening. As this isn't a podcast about religion, I edited it down considerably, trying to provide an understanding of the strength of her beliefs and the importance they have in her life, while still keeping the focus on Pat's memories of her youth. She lived a quiet life away from the fashion industry, but kindly took the time to reminisce and share her experiences with us. On the website, you can see photos from Pat's modeling career, images of the garments and accessories she makes, and also read the essay she wrote for Essence about the modeling industry, which we talk about in this interview. If you're a fan of the podcast, you should subscribe to my newsletter, where I cover similar themes each week. It's also called Sighs and Whispers and can be found at laurakitty.substack.com. I send out one free newsletter a week and one paid. All financial support of the newsletter allows me the time to write this newsletter, make this podcast, and do my Instagram. So please do consider becoming a paid subscriber. If you're interested in fashion, black history, or New York in the 70s and 80s, I think you'll really love this conversation. Share with your friends, subscribe, and please write a review so that more people can find their way to this podcast. Enjoy. Hi, Pat. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me today. Yeah, I'm sorry. You know, my phone, I don't know what's going on. It's like every time it rains, my phone is not working. That's what I get for living in the woods. I mean, I've I've definitely had that problem in more rural areas. But you get all of the wonder of being in the woods with all those animals, right? That's right. (laughs) You know, I would never leave. It sounds beautiful. I love love the woods. um, It is. It's quiet. That's what I like about it. So where did you, where were you born and where did you grow up? Well, I was born um, in New York City. And uh, I grew up in New York City. In the, in the I, I think you heard the Bronx, or have you? You've heard of Sugar Hill, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was my neighborhood, Convent Avenue. Basically, that's where all the black celebrities came from. We all grew up together: Paula Kelly, Billy D. Williams, uh, Mercedes Ellington. Everybody was in the same neighborhood. Did you know them all? When you were oh, yeah. They were my playmates. Wow. Paul is a, was an amazing dancer. Um, yeah, we had the, the Ronettes. They lived across the street. And Philippa Schuyler, she lived 
across the street, everybody lived there. Even the man who played, you, you probably wouldn't remember him, but his name is Montan Moreland. He played uh, on the Charlie Chan movies. Oh, wow. It was, you know, I mean, he's much older than me, but I'm, he's gone now. But um, he even lived there. Everybody lived there. And your heritage was is African American and Native American, right? Uh, I don't like the term African American because we mm-hmm. didn't come from Africa. You know, that's something that was has been made up. You know, mm-hmm. but um, I my parents they're Native American, and I prefer to be called a Hebrew. Mm. Hebrew, we, we would be the tribe of Judah and Gad. Uh, my my tribe on my mother's side, which is Nanticoke-Lenape, they're still intact. We still have a chief, and we still have, um, you know, tribal lands down in Salem, New Jersey, in the Salem mm-hmm. region area. My dad, um, which is, Cherokee is actually part of Powhatan Nation, Paw Monkey down in uh, Hampton, Virginia. And I don't know too much about them because my dad left my mother when I was about seven, so I never got the chance to really meet that side of the family. Mm. My mother raised my sister and I alone. Were you always into, like, fashion and art and creating things? Ever since I was a little girl. (laughs) My mother tried to... You know, she said, oh, no, you got to be a nurse. You know, that doesn't work for people of color. And I said, but, I, you know, I, I wanted to sketch things, and I wanted to play drums, which I I even bought myself a, a conga drum, and I learned how to play that. And I wanted to dance, and she just said, no, 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 you know. So I went to school for nursing, hated it, and um, I think I worked in the hospital for a year, and that was about it, and then I joined uh, Olatunji, African dance troupe, mm. toured with him. Had you studied dance before that? I studied ballet. I didn't study African dance. And I have to say that I was very poor at it, but uh, I started out working for Tunji as his secretary, and uh, he liked that I could play the drums. But he said, I don't want you to mess your hands up, so I'm going to make you dance. But I... All the girls that danced were larger than me. So when they went out there on that stage and they did the dance, you know, they could shake everything. I couldn't shake anything. So I, I wasn't, I wasn't good at it. And they made fun of me and they said, "Ah, oh, you, you should just be a model or something because this is not for you." So they led me right into it. And I went and I became a model. How did you start modeling? Well, I was discovered in uh, Greenwich Village by um, a woman from France, and she was a model. She was a, I think she was probably with Ford, and she walked up to me and she said, you know what, you should be a model. And she took me to see a photographer, and he, his name was Augusta Peterson, and he worked for Seventeen Magazine, and he shot some photos of me, and then I, um, I went I went to the black agencies, but they didn't like me. They said I wasn't black enough. You're not black enough. You know, because they were looking, black Black is beautiful was in at that time, so they were looking for very dark-skinned girls. Mm-hmm. 
So I said, you know what? I'm just going to go to a white agency. And they loved me. And uh, Twiggy was in the same agency with me. She was very popular at that time. And I became, Twiggy and I became the highest paid models in that agency, which was Stewart Agency in New York City. And then I went and I joined Zoli. Mm-hmm. And uh, the career just took off from there. Did you enjoy it? You know, it's hard to say because modeling, I'm I'm a shy person. And I'm, I don't even think I was right for it, but I had high cheekbones, and everybody at that time wanted high cheekbones. So, you know, I made my way just with my high cheekbones. I wasn't tall enough. I was only 5'8", and people like Naomi Sims was 5'10", and everybody was a little bit taller than me. And so I had a rough time with it. I mean, I stuck with it. And I enjoyed all the people that I met, and I had to make my own success. I um, I was always ahead of my time. My sister and I were like the first people, first so-called black people in New York City that had an afro. And we had our afros. Uh, the only person that had an afro was Odette, Odetta or whatever her name was, the singer. Uh, and that was about it. And we would laugh that men and women gave us money, say, you're embarrassing the black race. You need to get your hair done. And we would get on the train, and people would laugh so hard they would have to get off before their stop. I was working for a United Parcel Service, and there was two girls in United Parcel Service. And instead of calling me Pat, they would, they made up a name, Mumbi. Let's call her Mumbi, you know. And they laughed and mm-hmm. laughed and laughed. Then I I went to Germany, and I came back, and I saw one girl with an afro. And I said, oh, my God, somebody has an afro. And then it became two girls. And then it started where I couldn't count them anymore because everybody was getting into their black culture and black is beautiful, happened, and seemed like the whole world had an afro then. And I was happy about that. I didn't model with – I did a few pictures with – Afro, but I I was walking down the street one day and I saw a little black girl skipping down the street and she had a yellow sweater uh, on her head tied backwards and she she was pretending it was her blonde hair mm-hmm. and I, I said wow I said I remember as children we used to play that game it was called white lady and I said you know what. What if there wasn't any hair at all? Because white people want to get brown. I said, so it's not the color that bothers them. It's it's the hair that everybody is upset about. So I went home and I shaved off all my hair. And I went, the next day I had a, a call, and I went, it was with Stephen Burroughs. And I was only a size two, and he put this little tight dress on me, and I had a wig on. My agency didn't know I was bald. And when I took the dress off, the wig went flying off, and Stephen said, you have a bald head? And I said, yeah, I shaved my head off. I'm sick of that good hair, bad hair thing that people go through. So he said, do my show with your bald head. And I said, if I do the show with the bald head, I probably will never model again. 
because no one else has a bald head out here. But I did it, and I became an overnight success. People came from Japan and Germany all to photograph me. How did shaving your head impact how you felt about yourself? Oh, I loved it. You know, uh, it. I felt very spiritual. You know, I didn't, um, it was just a, a different sense of you don't belong, you, you belong to the universe, put it that way. <laughs> you, know, you didn't belong to a particular race. You just, you felt different, you know. I didn't have to worry about hair. I could get up in the morning and, Although at night your hair grows back, so I'd have a 5 o'clock shadow on my head, so I would have to shave every day. But I loved being bald. I didn't walk down the street that way. Uh, I would always wear a head wrap or something because I didn't want people to know who I was. And um, sometimes I could get away with it. Other people just knew the face. But, um, you know, I enjoyed it. I kept it that way for about nine or ten years and then I started growing it back because I opened up my own agency and uh, I was the only agent out there that had every race from East Indians to people from Belize and Spain and China and the agency became very successful because most agencies you either had a white agency or, or a black agency and I said no I want everybody so I had about 85 models I had a beauty division, children's division, and um, a lot of people uh, that were in the agency became movie stars and everything. I'm very proud of them. Were you? Did you feel called to start your own agency because of how your your time in modeling and how you were treated while you're a model? I just, you know, what I was tired of is that when I was in agency, uh, with agencies and, and with most black models, all they did was liquor, hair, and cigarettes. You know, mm-hmm. it was very seldom that they had a a soap ad or something different than liquor, hair, and cigarettes. You would get a whole lot of money for that because they would put billboards up in minority neighborhoods with, you know, smoking Salem cigarettes and more cigarettes and all kinds of alcohol. And the only other things that people would be doing would would be runway. And with runway, uh, Giorgio St. Angelo and a couple of other designers, black designers like um, Scott Barry, Will Smith, Willie Smith, and uh, Stephen Burroughs, they would use you for their shows. But other than that, they didn't want a whole lot of black models in Vogue. They let Naomi Sims and Beverly Johnson do it, one black one. They would have one black one, one uh, Beverly Johnson's, you know, and then they would have uh, the junior model, Joyce Walker, and that was it. You know, they didn't just let everybody do everything. Although I have been in Vogue and in Bazaar, it wasn't something that, like Twiggy, she was always in those magazines. And the the funny part about it is that the magazines didn't pay. It was just the prestige of being in them. They didn't pay a lot of money. I think they paid maybe $15 an hour at that time. But, um, you know, you would always get your tear sheets for your portfolio 
so that you could do big ad campaigns, but they didn't give big ad campaigns to minority models at that time. I know you did the Astarte ads. Did you do other ads? Uh, I Like I said, cigarettes, you mm-hmm. know, things I didn't want to do. I'm not a cigarette smoker, you know, and I just didn't want that type of thing. So I thought it was best that, you know what, let me open up my own agency. Well, first of all, uh, people got mad at me. One person really got, she didn't get mad, but she was jealous. That was Susan Taylor. And uh, one thing that I do like that she did come to me and tell me that she was jealous of me. And she said, because I, I had an Afro and her husband was a beautician and he wanted her to put her hair in an Afro and she didn't want to do it. So she hated me for that reason. And that was even before Essence, before she came to editor. But I wrote an article uh, exposing everybody out here. Mm-hmm. And the article said, you know, that that they only wanted us to uh, do liquor, hair, and cigarettes. And Essence published it. But Susan was so jealous, she went and wrote at the bottom, Pat Evans is no longer modeling. And that was not true. You know, so uh, I was very upset about that. And um, it it just seemed like a a lot of people that I even started in the business kind of turned against me. So I said, I'm going to open my own agency because I want everybody to have equal opportunity out here. And, you know, I I, uh, let them do fashion shows for Hiroko and... You know, they. It, it was nice. It was nice to have that, and I was supported by uh, Lockhart and Pettis and the Black Ad Agencies, and you know, we made our way. Do you feel like you were able to slightly change the work that they were getting away from mm-hmm. the liquor? Yeah, definitely. That's great. It was great, you know. Yeah, I read that the your piece in Essence and and saw the thing at the you know, the amend- the addendum at the end that says you're no longer modeling. Um, well, I don't think anybody should be that jealous. I'm 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 so low keyed. I'm a quiet person, you know. But I'm always extremely truthful. I will tell you the truth about anything because I don't believe in lies. And even if the truth is ugly, I'm not going to make a lie beautiful for you. I'm going to let you know exactly how I feel. And that's the one thing they didn't like about me. I mean, I some of the models that were successful, I started their career. Tony Barbosa and I did it together. We would put them in things. Grace Jones and Pat Cleveland, you know, all of them. I started Pat Cleveland. She might she was working with uh Johnson Publications and I introduced her to Stephen Burroughs and he loved her and he started using her for everything, and then she turned on me too. She she went. We were doing a show, um, the award show for designers, and she got up on stage and said that Pat Evans is racist. And I heard her over the microphone telling all those designers I was a racist because of that article. I wasn't racist. I was just standing up for my people that they need to do other things too. But she felt she was on her way, and 
You know, that's what she wanted to do. You know. Mhm. And I have to admit I never liked her after that because I said, "Wow, I started that girl. I introduced her, took her by her hand. I saw her on 57th Street and I said, "You should be a little model." And she was only about 18 then and I took her by her hand and took her to Stephen Burrell's studio. You know, I, I never had too much to do with her during her little career, but for her to do that because she, you know, she was doing a show for Halston and she thought that was cute to do, you know, I I said, I'm just going to do my own thing, and I did. Do you feel like that article made any changes at the time or like well, affected industry I, at all? It affected mm-hmm. me, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it opened up some eyes because, see, the black models were, they were very afraid to speak out because they didn't want to lose any work. I didn't care. You know, I really didn't care because I was designing clothes for Isaac Hayes. I was doing so many other things, and they didn't have, you know, they, they all they did was model. So they didn't want to open their mouth. They would just accept any kind of money and all of that. And when I opened my agency, I made sure that these people were paid the right amount. And if anybody was harassed by a photographer, I would go after the photographer. I would come right out of my office and go right down to the studio. I wouldn't let them embarrass them or or try to. I had a little Chinese girl in the agency and, one photographer did something very bad. She came back crying. I said, what's wrong? And she told me what happened. And I went right out of my office, you know, and I said, I'm going to, I'm going to have, I'm going to have this printed in the newspaper, what you did, ruin your whole career. And he begged and begged and begged, you know, but I'm, I wouldn't, I was the mother. I was the mother hand of the agency. And I had good people that worked with me. I had Stuart Bosley. Bosley was, Roberta Flack's husband, and um, Stuart and I, we we were very tough on people, and we knew what we were doing. We knew the business. So, you know, uh, the agency was pretty big. We did a nice job. Your sort of um, mother henness, was that sort of a reaction to how, like, were you badly treated by photographers and taken advantage of? Never, not That's at good. all. They knew. I mean, uh, there were photographers that I absolutely loved, like Joel Brodsky. Joel Brodsky mm-hmm. is the one who did all the Ohio Player album covers. But uh, his whole crew, I even started working with them and doing the makeup, and we did Aretha Franklin's makeup. We did everybody's makeup there. Yeah, how did you come to do those album covers, to be on the covers for Ohio Players? Well, they wanted me because I had the shaven head, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't something that I wanted to do. As a matter of fact, I told Joe, I don't want to do any more of these. This is not me. This is not, I'm not into, I didn't even know what the album covers were about, you know. And when I found out, because I had um, some church wrote to me and said, do you know that those album covers are about S&M? And I said, uh, you know, I was naive. I said, what is S&M? And when they told me, I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> you know. And I told Joe, I don't want to do these covers. 
I said, I, you know, this is not my thing. You know, I'll model with clothes on. I don't want my body shown all the time. And it's so funny, no matter whether I was in Essence or any of the other magazines, Vogue, Bazaar, everybody remembers the Ohio Players. <laughs> That's something, and it's still with me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's still something that, you know, people say, oh, yeah, I know who she is, the girl on the Ohio Players. They never say, you know, the girl who did the cigarette ad or the girl who uh, did the fashion show or anything like that, you know. But it's always the Ohio Players, and it's just not something that uh, it. I'm I, I'm not proud of those album covers. I, I never liked them. You know, and I hate to say that. Uh, I loved Junie, one of the Ohio players. He was a very nice person. But, um, you know, it's, it's not my thing. As I said, I'm very shy. I've been shy since I was a little girl, and I don't want to be exposed to everybody that, you know, that was just not my thing. I did it because I I had already had two children, and I had to support them. My husband ran off with some white woman and, you know, left me. And so I said, I'll take care of myself and my kids. And the Ohio players didn't pay that well anyway. You know, but thank God, you know, I was doing the makeup for all the different movie stars, for Cicely Tyson, for uh, Aretha, and Phyllis Hyman, did it for Melba Moore. I was doing makeup, and that's what was earning me my money. And I was designing clothes for Isaac Hayes for stage. How did you start, like, how did you start working with him? Um, Uh, I did... uh, a spread in in Essence magazine. They, um, Isaac Hayes wanted me to be the model with him, and that picture is all over. I love that picture mm-hmm. where I have the green dress on and uh, I'm with Isaac Hayes. And I, um, I got to know him, and, and then I told him, I said, I want to design your clothes because I don't like that you come on stage with the type of tights you have on, I said, you don't know that. People can see right through your tights. And he said, they can? (laughs) I said, yeah. So I said, I'm going to help you get that changed. So I went to uh, one of my favorite designers, Alexis Kirk. He's a jewelry designer, but he also uh, made Lycra tights. And we got together and we started putting things together for Isaac Hayes. And um, Isaac loved it. He would fly me out to wherever he lived, and, you know, I'd bring him clothes and stuff so that he could, uh, he could, you know, do the Grammy Awards and all of that and wear them. And we became very good friends. Had you made clothes before that? Designed clothes before that? I made clothes for myself. You know, I I I was always into fashion. I I always loved different things than other people would wear. So from about seventeen, I started 
you know, just changing the way I looked. And uh, when I went to Europe, uh, I saw so many beautiful things, and I came back and I said, you know, I, I met this uh, Japanese designer, Hiroko, and Hiroko uh, always wanted me to model her clothes. So we would sit down together, and she would just put on all kinds of things on me. And I like that what she would do was cut on the bias, Mm-hmm. And those were simply beautiful. And I learned a lot from her, and I started making coats. And I had a little, my friend and I uh, had a little company called Hired Hands, and we would make, we started making clothes, and then we started making coats for uh, Nona Hendricks from LaBelle. And everybody, everybody wanted our things that we were making because nobody was wearing things like that, big, thick, furry leggings like you lived in Canada someplace. You know, we we got together and we made all kinds of things. And we got into hides, leather, you know, deerskin and all of that. And I continued ever since then. I still make everything. Yeah, I saw in on the cover of I think of Essence a coat that I think was made by you was red leather with the whip stitching, and mm-hmm. was everything custom made? Yeah, that was um, the Santa Claus one. Yeah, yeah, right. But that's you know what I do. I make all the Native American dresses. I make the moccasins and the war shirts and everything that Native American people wore. I make that, but I also make. Uh, things for your home and our dance sticks and just everything, dolls. I make one of a kind and I make uh, Hebrew Israelite clothing as well. Inspired by the touch of a fabric or the hide. Uh, One day I even made a black leather pocketbook with a entire bear claw, bear paw, I should say, on it, and it was beautiful, you know, anything that inspires me, whether it's the fabric or the hide, um, I can be inspired by seeing something and and saying, wow, I should make something like that, but I would do this or that, and then I change it all around, and... um, Sometimes I even dream of an outfit, and then I get up and sketch it and, you know, try to design it and make it. The photos you sent me are really beautiful um, and wonderful. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I call it therapy. (laughs) You know, anything that you do that's creative, most creative people call it therapy because it takes you away from the world and it, you know, you're in your own little world and you're doing what you do. Mhm. Do you hand bead like the moccasins? Everything or? is handmade. I don't do anything with the machine except for when I make the Hebrew Israelite clothing, I sew it on the sewing machine. Oh. But every, you know, thing made out of deer skin or you know, elk, whatever. It's all hand mm-hmm. done, all the beading and the cutting of fringe. Very impressive. 
But it does sound meditative, that kind of work. Yeah, it is. Um, I mean, you sit down and you you get so into it that that's all you're thinking of. And sometimes I hand paint different things. I'll hand paint buffalo running across the hide or horses. And, you know, it's really um, something that relaxes you. I think everybody should have a creative hobby. I mean, with the world the way it is today, so many people are tensed up and angry and all of that. And when you're creative, you know, you can express yourself on whatever you're making, you know, the Mm -hmm. colors and the beads and all of that. Uh, become an expression of you. I try to make my granddaughter paint. She can paint very well. And and I said, oh, just take the canvas and and do you. (laughs) Do what you feel. It doesn't have to be perfect. I mean, you can't say what was perfect about Picasso or Van Gogh or any of them. They did what they wanted to do. That's what art is about. But I like Everything. I like writing. I've written songs for Atlantic Records. And I wrote I wrote songs for Aretha. And while I was working with her, I said, I'm not going to give her these songs because I don't want her to think, you know, it's just like being a model when you're a model. Everybody that you know comes up to you and says, oh, my daughter wants to be a model. Can you help him? You know, and I didn't want to do that to Aretha. I was her makeup artist, and I wanted to leave it like that. But then one day I said, I'm going to tell her. I have all these songs for her. So I wrote her, and I said, Aretha, I wrote so many songs for you. And she said, well, I want to see them. I want to see them. Mail them to me. And I typed it all up and put it in the envelope, and then she passed. I never got it to the mailbox. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I might, if I find a different artist, give it to them. But I really wanted it for her. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, you know, I still have it. It's on my desk in the envelope. <laughs> I was going to mail it the next day and then. You know, she didn't even tell me that she didn't feel good and she was sick. I was in shock because up here where I am, you don't get the news like you should get it, you know. I'm sure like in New York and every place else, when when Isaac died, I never knew that he died until later. Mm. I I said, why are they so slow? Why don't they have the news that, that tells about our people dying? (laughs) <laughs> you know, somebody you, had to you, call me and tell me, you know, Isaac Hayes died today? I said, no. So when Paula Kelly died, I mean, Paula Kelly and I were like sisters. And I said, I'm going to see how long it takes them to say something on the news. And it was about four or five days later they mentioned something. It was so brief. It was unbelievable. Do you still keep in touch with, you know, people from your youth and your modeling days and uh, I have some on Facebook, some of the models that were with my agency. I'm not really in touch with um, many others because, I mean, Clifton Davis and I are always in touch. He he used to be a boyfriend of mine, so I every year I always say happy birthday to him 
and he does the same to me. We're not writing each other, you know, because I do respect his marriage and everything. But um, the rest of the people I'm not too much in touch with. It's hard because they move around so much, and I never... There's so many people that I want to be... I want to be in touch with Marilyn McCoo. And mm-hmm. she came right up this way and performed, and I missed it. And, you know, th- these are people that I did become close with, you know, and uh, have all the letters that we wrote back and forth, and, and then they disappear out of your life, and you never get a chance to see them again. You know, it's hard when you establish those friendships, but, you know, I I, I think of them often. You know, it's just that, you know, they move around so much, you, you lose their numbers, and, you know, you just don't worry about it anymore. That time was that time, and, you know, sometimes I, I just write down, I think, well, all my friends are dying. Everybody I know that I worked with, you know, they're all gone. It's very few mm-hmm. left. I I read your book of poetry and it was very sort of evocative of that time. Oh, you know. Leonard Nimoy. Yeah. He was. <laughs> I loved Leonard. He was fun, wild and crazy man. I mean, he he got me fired from my job. <laughs> you know, but I had to laugh. I said, I don't even care, Leonard. You know. I mean, he he refused to work on a job unless I was going to be there doing his makeup. And they got mad at me and they fired me. But um, we became good friends and, you know, we laughed at a lot of things. He wanted me to do Star Trek. And I said, you know what, I'm not going out there to California. I said, everybody that I know in California they're doing drugs, they're drunk, or whatever. I said, I, I can't. I have, you know, ch- children, and I, I just want to be with my kids, you know. So then they went and got that bald-head girl, Persis, that East Indian girl, and put her in. Because he said, don't you want to be in the movie? Don't? And I said, no, Lana, I really, really don't. I just want to be quiet. I, I don't want to move around. I don't want people to know me. And then I got a little upset when I saw her in the movie with her shaving head. I said, shame on me for being upset. But it was okay. The poems you wrote about him and your time together was really are really beautiful. Oh, thank you so much. It wasn't. It never got edited. <laughs> records. I misspelled words, and I said, you know, I said, do it all over again and do it right, but. We were writing, Leonard is a poet, you know, and he kept saying, I want you to have, a, I want you to put this in a book. And I said, no, Leonard, I want to make cards. I don't want a book. I want to I want to make greeting cards and put my poems in that. And he said, no, Pat, just do a book, do a book. And I procrastinated, and, and then when he passed, um, I said, you know what, let me do what Leonard said to do. So I, I quickly did it. I sent it to a place they were supposed to edit it and correct the spelling, and they just put it right out. Didn't do anything. I personally didn't think that the spelling, any spelling mistakes, took away from it because it is, as you said, it's poetry and it 
Right. You know, it's, it's, it's the way you want it to be, you know? It's your the emotion comes through. You know? Right, you know. And it's what I mean, he wrote in his books and he wrote some things that I know pertain to me nobody else would know, but you know, Leonard Leonard was special and he stood up for people of color all the time. You know, he even got, what's her name, Uhura, uh, more money in Star Trek because they wasn't paying her right, you know. And he, he, he was, he, he was, he was Spock, <laughs> you know, he was. And that's what people don't know about him, you know. But he, he would get you in trouble because he would make you laugh and then his face would be straight. You know, and he—he he was just funny. He always made me laugh. He took me to museums and, you know, um, out to dinners and people. It's—it's it's just very hard. It was very hard on him. He was going through a divorce when we were dating, and you know, he had a hard time. People just. He told me one day, watch out for the Trekkies, and I didn't even know what Trekkies were. And I said, what's that? And then I looked down the street, it looked like 200 people rushing up to us. And I said, oh, my God, you go through that all the time? He said, yeah. But he's, you know, what I liked about Leonard is he was, see, I only like men that are intelligent. And Clifton, uh People don't know that he is a genius, and Leonard is extremely, extremely smart. He knows everything. And I like to listen to him. I like to listen to them read and, and talk, and if I ask a question, they know everything about what I'm talking about. And I, they're just, you know, they were perfect men as mm-hmm. far as being intelligent. Mm-hmm. I don't like dumb men. You yeah. know, they would always, Leonard would say, hey, Pat, listen to this. And he'd have this book and he'd read out of it. And same thing with Clifton. He would, you know, did you read about the such and such? You know, they always had something to share, and that's great. And then I'd like them to read to me because they're actors. <laughs> and it sounds better than me reading it. I read that you acted in the play. Did you do any other acting? Um, I studied acting. Telly Savalas was my teacher. And um, I even studied TV production with uh, Ossie Davis. and It was called Third World Cinema. Taught you all the production of TV, which was nice. Um, I was in a play called A Gun Play. And it was an off-Broadway play. It was okay. It was interesting to do. I mean, it was the first time I was ever in a play. Mm-hmm. And um, the fellow who starred in it became a big movie star. And, um, you know, I'm glad that I had the opportunity to be in that play with him. But, um, I didn't pursue... You know, acting. I studied it because you, you need it for TV commercials and all of that. But um, then I 
uh, <laughs> a lot of us had the opportunity to be in Clute with Jane Fonda, and then after we filmed all day long, they cut the whole scene out of all the black models. So. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was funny because I went and I took all my friends to the movie when it came out, and I said, here's the part now coming up. Here's where we come on. And it went right to the next scene. It was kind of comical. I said, wow, they cut us all out. Not one of us was shown. And Jane kept saying, why are you doing two different sets on this where you're showing these girls come in and then you're rolling the same film again with these other girls, meaning the black girls coming in, and she couldn't understand what they were doing, but that's what they were doing. They have to hire you, but they don't have to put you in the movie. Mm. We got cut out. And then I would have had the opportunity to do The Wiz. A lot of my model friends were in there, but Susan Taylor stopped that. They asked her uh, for my phone number, and she said, oh, um, I don't have her phone number. She had my phone number. She didn't want me to be in it. So I was, and I was told later that, um, you know, they they were looking for me, and I, and I said, well, why didn't you call me? I said, Essence has my phone number. They said, Susan said she didn't have it. And I said, oh, okay. I never was on the cover of Essence magazine, and I think I should have been. You know, but she prevented that as well. It sounds like you were very busy, like modeling, acting, making clothes, doing makeup. How did you balance all of that with be- being a mother? <laughs> being a mo- I took them everywhere I went, everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, when Tony Barbosa and I had things that we were doing, because we stuck together, Tony Barbosa. I, I would take them to the studio, and he had small kids too, and sit them right on the couch. And while we worked on things we wanted to put out, like we did some things with Grace Jones when she first started, and uh, we wanted to photograph her and do this whole thing with jewelry and a very dark girl, you know, that could be the image that we wanted. She was perfect for it, and we used her. And my kids went everywhere with me. There was an, you know, they went on most of my shoots, and they were good, and that made them become models. They've been in, uh, they've been in Vogue and Bazaar. Matter of fact, my son, he would have been on Sesame Street, but he kind of showed his behind, and they said, we can't have him. They wanted him so bad, but he saw a toy on this producer's desk, and he wanted to play with it. And the producer said, no, it's all the way from London, and it's very special. Well, he started crying, and he wouldn't stop crying. And they said, I'm sorry, Pat, we can't use him for Sesame Street if he's going to act like that. And I said, he has never acted like this in his life. And I took him home, and I said, wow, you messed that up. And they wanted my daughter for a Little Shop of Horrors, the movie, mm-hmm. uh, because she could sing and she wasn't shy. And when we got to the studio for her interview, she became shy. 
So it wasn't mm-hmm. meant for them. And then I I heard my son one day tell one of the kids in the neighborhood, "My, I make more money than your dad. I can do an ad, and I have more money than your father." And I said, "You know what? Time for me to take them out of the business. I don't want them to act like that." Where did you live when you were raising them? Were you still in Riverdale. Sugar Hill? Beautiful Riverdale. Mm. On the Hudson Rock. Riverdale was wonderful. Yeah, that's where your you had your modeling agency based, right? Well, my agency was on Sixth Street, Seventh Avenue, something like that. I was in the same building with Melvin Van Peoples mm-hmm. and Martin Charnin, who did Annie on Broadway. That's where my agency started, and then <clears throat> I moved to Riverdale, and I. I I said, you know what, I'm, I think I'm going to work. My apartment was big. I, I'm going to work from home so I could watch my children when they go to school and everything. I don't want to be down here on Broadway and they're going to school and get home before me because you never know what kids will do, you know. Mm-hmm. So I stayed home and did all my work. Did they end up going into creative careers? No. Okay. Unfortunately, no. My son passed away. I'm sorry. And uh, my daughter is, she hasn't done anything. I'm very unhappy with her. Very unhappy with her. It's hard raising children and being in this business because, and not only that, I mean, I was in Riverdale. I loved Riverdale. We had a doorman building and uh, it was all basically at that time all Jewish neighborhood. I think there was one other family of color in the building, and I loved being there. But for them, it didn't work out mm-hmm. because uh, there wasn't enough other people. You know, there wasn't enough Hispanic. There wasn't enough black people. And, um, you know, they they just, the, the little rich kids up there did a whole lot of stuff they shouldn't be doing. They were taking their parents' cars out at night without the parents' knowledge. They, they were uh, using drugs. And all of that falls right on your kids, you know. They're trying to fit in. Mm-hmm. And I, I realized my mistake. I said, you know what? This is not for my children because they're just trying to fit in with these people. And, you know, the, the, their parents don't care about them. They go on vacation and leave their teenagers at home by themselves. You know, you can't do that, you know. So then I, I decided, I said, you know what? I had... This was supposed to be my summer home up here. And I said, you know what, I'm just going to move up there, and I'm going to stay and live in the woods. I'm going to take them. By that time, they was uh, in their early 20s. I said, I'm taking them with me. And I brought them up here. They hated it. (laughs) It's nothing but the woods. It's bears. And I said, yep, you know, we're going to live here. And pretty soon they kind of adjusted, but, you know, they didn't 
they didn't like it. They always they had that city in them, and so they kept trying to visit cities, you know, hang out and all that. Up here, at this place was shut down at six o'clock in the in the winter time. 4.30 because it's pitch black and it's nothing but woods and you can't even see the front of your hand. So mm-hmm. they didn't like that. You know, at that time they didn't have cars or anything. And I said, this is this is wonderful. <laughs> but it was wonderful for me but not for them because it wasn't anybody. They didn't like it until they got older. And they said, now I know what you mean. And I said, yeah. Just be away from people and all that craziness that they're doing. I went down to the city, I guess it was about 10 years ago, because um, that show Unsung wanted me to to be on it for the Ohio players. And when I got down there, I felt like I was in Sodom and Gomorrah. I couldn't wait to get back home. I said, you know what, I'll never go to New York City again. I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand walking down Broadway. Uh, there were so many people, you uh, you had to say, excuse me, excuse me, just to walk down the street. And they were doing everything, <laughs> everything unbelievable to me. I mean, I hadn't been there in so long. And then to see people nude with tattoos all over their body, taking pictures with other people, uh, it wasn't for me. I said, I'm getting out of here. I can't wait. The show is over. I'm going straight home. And I mean it. I I will probably never go to New York City again in life. It's uh, you know, I'm considering you were born in New York City. It's kind of a it sounds kind of surprising, I guess. But you know, do you have fond memories of it from your childhood, or, or just? Oh yeah, no, it was different then. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it was different. You could go to Greenwich Village and have a good time and. You could go to the different clubs on Broadway and everything. I mean, I, I'm more spiritual, and I'm close to God. I don't want to. I don't want to be bothered with this. It's not what I like and what I want to see and what I'm interested in. Well, I, you know, I consider myself Hebrew Israelite. You know, everybody hates them, but that's what I am. You know, and when more people of the 12 tribes wake up, they will find that they are too, you know. I I don't accept names given to me by anybody. I'm not Negro-colored, African-American, black and all that. I am a Hebrew Israelite. You know, if your ancestors came over here on a slave ship, that's what you are, and black people need to wake up about that. But uh, my thing is that from childhood, my I I want to be a woman after God's own heart. You know, I I really want to do what is right. And when I got married, uh, I married a guy that was in the church. You know, he was um, Seventh Day Adventist, and he took me and had me baptized and everything. And he turned out to be insane. You know. So I realized that the church was not for me because they wasn't teaching the truth. And I still know that they're not teaching the truth to our people, you know. And um, as 
you know, God says the whole world is deceived, but they don't know. And, you know, it's time. There's an awakening going on, but very few people will be awake because um, they don't accept, and they don't know, you know. I mean, what does God say? My people suffer from lack of knowledge. We, They don't know. They really don't know. They've been lied to and fooled for so long of who they are. And I'm trying to help wake them up. Somebody has to do it. You know, I get up extremely early to try and send a message through Facebook of who you really are. I mean, everybody tries to tell them. Even Malcolm X tried to tell them. I was there when he got shot. But, I mean, that that's part of my story and part of my being. And, you know, I just intend to live my life being a servant, you know. And that's it, you know. I, I Like I said, I want to be a woman after God's own heart. I want to do what he wants me to do. I don't want to do anything else in this world. I don't want to look at the world. I want to take care of the animals and make sure that they're okay. I have no no problems with them. I mean, bears walk right past me in my driveway. They don't try to attack me or anything. They look at me and keep on going, and I keep on going. You know, there's no... They they understand when you talk to them. People don't know that. You know. I had two big uh, bucks in my backyard, and they were fighting each other. They had these big antlers. And I walked back there. I said, what are you guys doing? You know, they're fighting over some food, some apples. And I said to them, I, I always feed everybody. I said, wait a minute, I'll be back. And I came back with more apples, and they both walked up to me and ate the apples. You know, they know every. See, people think animals are stupid, but an animal knows everything you're talking about. And I've learned that since I've been up here. But I realize being here, all of them know. They just, you know, God shut their mouth so they couldn't talk, but they understand. I tell them, you know, when I was little, it used to be men walking up and down the street with signs saying, repent, repent. I think I might have been the only child that would notice that. And now I'm saying it, repent, man. you got to repent. you got to change your ways and, you know, try and get right. Nothing will take me from where I am right now and put me back into the world. I don't want to be a part of the world. I'm very happy being in my quiet little place and trying to wake up other people so that they can understand what God is doing and who they are. It's very important right now, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, ever since I was a little girl, I used to see visions and everything. And I used to tell my mother, I'd say, Mom, last night something happened. I'd try to explain it to her from six and seven years old, and she said, well, you're dreaming you're awake. And I said, no, I am awake. And it happened all of my life. All of my life I was 
given visions. I saw the world trade before it happened. And, uh, you know, I, I knew that God was was touching me. I've always known that, you know. He's always shown me things before it happened. I I, I knew that my son was going to die, and, you know, that that's the job I have. I know what God wants me to do. He told me to gather his flock, and that's what I have to do. I've lost every good friend I have because they said, you're different, you're not the same. I said, it's not that I'm different. I'm awake. I know something that you don't know, and I have to share it. And there's nothing wrong with that, you know. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with finding your first love, which should be God. You know, he does exist. He is real. And to me, it doesn't make any difference who I am speaking to about him. I know what he's doing. And, I, you know, my my life, it is different, you know. The different paths that people have to take. You never know why you're here on earth. You will never, the more I learn about God and everything that's going on, the less you really know. Mm-hmm. Because it it's so much, you could never take it all in. And I was glad that he pulled me out of the world. and uh, Because I was in the world. You know, I was going to Studio 54. I was in, in the business. You know, entertainment business. And um, he took me out of it. But he had to take me in a different way than he took a lot of other people. I'm sure people, some people, because I did check that out too, some people experience what I experienced. But I, what happened to me, which I, I don't tell the story to everybody because I know they don't believe me, but um, I, my leg, my left leg was really hurting like sciatica or something. I It got to be so bad that I couldn't even move. So one night I was laying in my bed, and I remember it was in the month of October. I remember the date and everything. Um, and I'm laying in my bed, and uh, my I had a candle burning by next to on my little table, and the candle kept flickering. There was no wind in the room or anything, but it seemed to be getting brighter and flickering and flickering. So I thought, you know what, I need to blow this out before I fall asleep and this burns the whole house down. So I said, now i got to prepare myself, my body, to move up and move to the left to blow the candle out. So I said, the first thing you're going to have to do is, you know, make your pillow puff up so you can... Bend your elbow to move over there in all this pain. You can't walk. So I managed to do that. And But when I puffed the pillow up and set up to move over to the candle, I looked at the foot of my bed, and I couldn't see the wall. I said, oh, my God, am I going blind? And I kept rubbing my eyes and rubbing my eyes, and I said, I'm awake, and I can't see the wall. And then all of a sudden, I see it kind of, it looks so strange. And then a figure appeared at the foot of my bed. And the only thing that I could 
do was put my hand over my mouth, and I said, I know you. That's all I could say. And he said, Pat, get up, come to the foot of the bed. And I said, I can't walk. He said, get up and come to the foot of the bed. And I got right up and walked over to him. And he said, Pat, and and I'm, I'm afraid, but I'm not afraid because I knew who he was. And he said, it's not long before I'm returning. And I said, what? He said, you are going to be a trooper in my army, and you're going to help me gather my flock. And I said, uh, I don't know, because I'm not a good person, you know. I, I said, I, I'm not doing everything I should be doing. I, I don't know whether you want me. And he said, you are going to be a trooper in my army, and you're going to gather my flock. And just then my son came in the room, and he said, Mom, why, why is the candle so bright? And I realized he didn't know that I was talking to the Lord. And I said, he can't see him. So I took my right hand, and I, I signaled for him to go out of the room. And he, he said, okay, well, let it burn down, <laughs> you know. And so he said, I, I started to tell the Lord. I said, you know what? I said, I have a boyfriend. I committed adultery, you know. And I started confessing all the things that were wrong in my life. And he said, you won't be doing those things anymore. And I said, so I'm, I'm getting married again? He said, no, you're not going to be doing any of that. You're going to be a trooper in my army. And then I realized I'm standing in front of the Lord, and I'm looking in his eyes, and I can't take my eyes off of his eyes because it was they were so holy that uh, I started to cry, and I said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, because I started looking at his hair and his robe, and I said, you got to forgive me. I said, you know what? Everybody on earth wants to know whether you're, and uh, I'm being forward with him, whether you're white or black. And I said, here I am in front of you, and I'm staring at you. And I said, are you going to make me forget that you even came and that you talked to me? He said, no. So I said, well, can I just go with you now? And he said, no. Now, I was willing to not even deal with my children. I just wanted to be with him. Mm-hmm. He said, no. And I said, why? He said, because. And I, and I answered it for him. I'm going to be a trooper in your army. And then I heard somebody say, Master, it's time for us to go. We have to go see Terrence. And he said, to them, this is Pat. She's a trooper in my army, and she's going to gather my flock. And uh, I, I hugged him, and I'm standing there, and it was, you know, two other people and him, and then they disappeared, and I thought, I'm standing up, and I don't have any pain. So I shook the leg, and I still didn't have any pain. I spun around. I didn't have any pain. And I ran into my son's room, and he was like, you can walk? And I said, yeah. I said, you didn't see that? And he said, see what? I said, you didn't see the Lord? And he said, no, I didn't see anything. I said, the the candle was lighting up your whole room, though. So then I ran, and I got on the phone, and I told my mother, 
and this was like 3 o'clock in the morning. I said, Mom, I can walk. There's nothing wrong with me. And I told her what happened. And um, then I thought, I wonder who Terrence is. So the, the next morning I went to the store, and I looked at the headlines, and it said, Cardinal Terrence Cook died last night. And I said, oh, that's who Terrence was. And ever since then, he has not allowed me to be with anybody. There have not been any more men in my life. I don't deal with things the way I used to. And everything he said has come to fruition. You know, I, I'm i not the person that I was. And, you know, as far as I was concerned, I, you know, how would I go through the rest of my life and not have a male friend? I don't even miss them. I don't want anybody. He's made me like that, and I'm doing the job that he asked me to do. Whether I lose friends and family, I'm doing it. And I've been doing it. And the other thing is that if you're standing in front of him, there is no feeling on this earth that feels that way. So I imagine, you know, when we expire and we have the opportunity to be with him, you will feel complete like that. It's a whole different feeling than being in the human body. I've never felt anything like that in in my entire life. Mm -hmm. You know, it was so much joy so you you didn't feel sick. Everything was crystal clear. Uh, things looked different, you know. And you were not a part of this body that is holding you down, you know. It, I guess it was just the the spirit, you know. There's there's no word on earth that could explain the spirit. Spirit to spirit. And I would do anything to to have that feeling <laughs> again. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not going to have it until I die, but, you know, not unless he comes back to see me. But, you know, that was a miracle to God. You know, but every once in a while he shows me something to show me, keep going, Pat, keep going, Pat, don't give up, you know, and I, I just keep going. He told me, not long before I'm returning, he told me that 40 years ago. I mean, that's a long time ago. Mm-hmm. I thought, you know, okay, he's coming in a couple of months. <laughs> it's been 40 years. Those stories were really powerful. Thank you for sharing them with me. Trusting... Yeah, I- I want you to know that there's no games out here anymore. You know, find your way. Find your way to him, you know. It's it's hard for me because it wasn't an easy job, (laughs) you know. You almost feel like Moses, you know. But... um, 
you know, that's my story. <laughs> that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. That's my story. You know. You know. Thank you for revisiting your past with me, and also sharing your deep. It's the truth, you mm-hmm. know. And I'm not ashamed to be who I am. You know. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome, and you enjoy the rest of the day. And you too. Try to do what God says. Thanks again for listening to this conversation with Pat Running Bear Evans. I am working through a backlog of interviews, lots of great conversations coming up with artists, choreographers, and more. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode. All episode materials are available at sizewhispers.com. Thanks.